majority of you know me, but some of you uh, might not. I'm Maripapa Librea. I am the director of the Center for Iberian and Latin American Visual Studies. A bit louder. Yes, I am the Maripad Palibrea, I'm saying, the director of the Center for Iberian and Latin American Visual Studies, hosting this event. I am also the director of the MA and the Master by Research in Spanish, Portuguese, and Latin American Cultural Studies. And it is our great pleasure and honor to have with us, not only today, but this week, for more than one event, Professor John Beverly from the University of Pittsburgh, who is um, doing this masterclass today and in two more sessions. Before we get on with the masterclass um, itself, um, a few words of introduction, which is going to be in two parts. I want to give a little of a context, if you can bear with me for a couple of minutes about the presence of John Beverly here. Um, and then I'll pass it on to John Kraniauskas to do the proper introduction uh, of John Beverly. And, and then we can, we can uh, get on um, with what we are all here for. Um, as you know, this is our School of Arts Arts Week an annual event when school showcases the wealth of talent, research, and teaching excellence in the departments of the school. And I guess we invite you, the audience, uh, if, if appropriate, to uh, become part of the intellectual life and the creative life of the school by becoming our students. Uh, those of us working in the Iberian and Latin American studies fields are proud to contribute to the school's strengths. We do offer courses and programs from certificate to PhD level, and I have left uh, some information about some, not all, there are more, um, uh, programs, courses uh, that we teach. Feel free to take one of those, feel free to come uh, to me afterwards if you have any queries or any interests uh, or doubts. All of us in the fields of Iberian and Latin American studies are research active and our research is of international renown. All of our teaching is research-led. Our Center for Iberian and Latin American Visual Studies is at the core of our ILAS intellectual community. Um, we publish every year a newsletter. Again, I left some copies of it over there we, uh, where we sort of, uh, put together to highlight uh, the, the best work or some of the um, uh, most significant uh, work in terms of events, in terms of accomplishments of those of us, of us that are part of CELAS during the year. And that includes uh, those of us who teach here, but also our postgraduate uh, students. The center celebrates this year its 10th anniversary, and in its years of existence, it has distinguished itself for bringing to London some of the most important intellectuals and artists of the Spain, Portugal, and Latin America. What you have on the screen is a PowerPoint that we have prepared with some of the posters and some of the covers of the newsletters that we have been producing throughout these years to, to publicize um, our the work that we've been doing. We also have been distinguishing ourselves for stimulating discussion in conferences and seminars on the most pressing cultural issues for our fields, 
for promoting the work of both academic members and our research students and for being instrumental in the securing of grants and last but not least for establishing collaborations with individuals and institutions in the London area nationally and also internationally. It is precisely in this realm of collaborations that John Beverly's presence this week with us is to be understood. Uh, we inaugurate with him the collaboration between those of us here at Birkbeck working in the Iberian and Latin American studies areas and the Department of Hispanic Languages and Literatures at the University of Pittsburgh. As uh, you some might know, is one of the most important and renowned in the field. This collaboration is going to have um, two elements to it. Uh, the first one is a teaching exchange uh, through which uh, we are going to be welcoming every year around this time a different member of the Pittsburgh department. And in turn, one of us here at Birkbeck will go to Pittsburgh in September. Our first guest uh, in that exchange is, therefore, Professor Beverly. Uh, we are piloting this year um, uh, his uh, master class uh, with a view in the short future to turn these classes by our guests from Pittsburgh into elements of our postgraduate position so that our postgraduate students can take um, these uh, for credit. As you know, the title of the masterclass is The Politics of Theory, Postcolonialism, Cultural Studies, and the Aftermath. There are three sessions. Um, the first one is today. The second one is tomorrow, same place, same time. And the third one will be next Monday, the 22nd, same place, uh, same time. In addition to that, um, uh, John Bebel is going to give a public lecture. Uh, which is part of our CLAF seminar series, which we offer two or three times a year. And the title is A New Orientalism, the Question of Literature as Such, and Islamic Fundamentalism. This will be at 6 on Friday, uh, here in this building, uh, room uh, B04. The other element of the collaboration is the co-organization of conferences, alternating uh, the hosting of them between Pittsburgh and us. This year is, again, our turn. And between the 23rd and the 25th of November, uh, we will be organizing uh, the conference Border Subjects Global Hispanism. So watch out, watch out for that. There will be participation from um, uh, ILAS members here at Birkbeck, from Pittsburgh, and from elsewhere. So as you see, there is a lot going on in the field of Iberian and Latin American studies. If you are not already part of our community, we invite you to join in, be it by perhaps becoming interested in doing um, some of our courses, or uh, if you uh, simply want to attend our events. CLAFS organizes a lot of events. We try to keep everything that we do free and open to everyone. Um, if you are not part of our mailing list, which is the way in which we keep everyone informed of what we do, there is also a piece of paper over there on the piano uh, where you can uh, leave me with your email address and I will add you to the list. So nothing more from me. Uh, I will now leave you with uh, my colleague John Kraniauskas who will introduce John Beverly. Thank you very much. Uh, <coughs> and I'll well, turn this on. Yeah, be good as I like. Yeah. Anyway, well, thanks very much, uh, uh, Mary Pass. Uh, I'm really happy. It gives me great pleasure to 
introduce uh, John, Professor John Beverly, who I've known from, if you like, the early 1990s, uh, since I, if you like, entered the field as a professional or something, something like that. Uh, and uh, I have to say that John and his work has been a fundamental part of that, as it has, uh, I think, uh, I'm not exaggerating, uh, as it has uh, of, the of the field, let's say, of literary and cultural studies as a whole uh, since that time. Uh, John, as you heard, is a professor uh, in uh, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, uh, teaches now for the most part, uh, and publishes for the most part in the field of Latin American literary and cultural studies. Uh, but of course, he uh, still maintains his original interest in the Spanish Golden Age and teaches courses on uh, Don Quixote and Bolaño's 2,666, uh, uh, if you like, recently. So he maintains his original interest in the, uh, in the Golden Age. Of the Spanish Golden Age. He's published widely, uh, wildly and widely, <laughs> wildly and widely. Uh, wildly, I would say, it may be his book against literature, for example. Uh, but, uh, of course, that's not the only one. He's well known, of course, for initiating to a large part a lot of the discussion around the politics of literary studies, cultural studies uh, in the States and beyond, uh, around, if you like, the whole question of introducing the testimonial as a... Uh, uh, well. Uh, uh, as a literary form, but also as, a, in a way, an anti-literary form uh, uh, within the field. Uh, and some of that is in against uh, the book Against Literature, published by Minnesota Press, I think I'm right in saying. Uh, his other books include uh, Subalternity and Representation. Uh, uh, one of the most recent was is Latin Americanism uh, after 9-11, uh, a book which I think was important for him, but also for me, was his book, uh, co-published and co-written with Mark Zimmerman, uh, Literature and Politics in Central America. That came out just before I knew him in 1990 as well. Um, uh, he also uh, was uh, fundamental in introducing, if you like, uh, cultural studies as a as something to be taught <laughs> at graduate level within Pitt, with, I think, Gayatri Spivak, uh, and so on. So uh, he's, uh, if you like, been an important uh, presence in the field. Uh, who, who, and it's, if you like, this history, to a certain extent, that uh, is the object of uh, these master classes over the next uh, few hours, uh, beginning today with... Um, structuralism and post-colonialism. Um, the format is going to go something like this. Poor old John is now going to speak for about an hour and a half. Then we'll have a break and then we'll uh, come back. And then we'll have a 15-20 minute break, let's say. Uh, then we'll come back and then uh, I'll try to initiate a conversation with John uh, uh, about what he's presented so far, and then we'll open it up for more general discussion. Of course, you can interrupt me <laughs> as often as you like, but please don't interrupt John too often, at least in this first uh, hour and a half. So, John, I'm going to leave it to you.
for now. Thank you, John. Thank, thank you, Mary Bus. Uh, thank you all for coming uh, today. Can you everybody hear me okay? Uh, so, as uh, Mary Paz said, uh, this is uh, this invitation, this opportunity is part of a new collaborative relationship between uh, my department, my university, and Birkbeck, and uh, the Department of Languages and Cultures in the Center for Iberian and Latin American Studies that we hope will flourish in the next uh, period. That's <laughs> to say in Marxism, the coming period. Uh, uh, we, there are some elements of commonality that probably I should mention or repeat from what both John and Ernie Paz have said that make this relationship possible and, and in a certain sense animate uh, uh, what I'm going to try to say over the next uh, several days. Uh, which is a certain interest both departments uh, have uh, a certain commitment on the part of, not exclusive, but certainly an inclination in the direction of cultural studies. Pittsburgh right? uh, was one of the first universities in the United States, Guy Grishvick was one of our colleagues then, and together with some other people, including myself, we put together the cultural studies program at the University of uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, more of a humanities-centered cultural studies model than your model, than the Birmingham School model here in England, uh, and theory-driven. Uh, and uh, I think Birkbeck has some, some of that. So cultural studies is one line of co-articulation between the two departments, if we go to the two programs, put it that way. And the other is perhaps uh, a, a more, uh, well, it's harder to put a finger on it because the term itself is very slippery, but an interest in post-colonial, uh, in the post-colonial as a mode of thinking about the world and without necessarily being post-colonialist as stuff, but, but work that's inflected in that in that kind of way. The third thing I would say, I know Birkbeck has a reputation of being a kind of the, the college of the English labor movement, uh, uh, or at least associated in some kind of way with it. Pittsburgh Spanish department that I've worked in for the last 40 years, more or less, uh, is a pinkish department. Uh, <laughs> Uh, like the pink tide in Latin America. We're, we're, in our field, we're red because we've tried to take a position in our work in the department uh, without imposing any line on anybody. But the, the kind of work we're interested in is work that has to do with social, the imbrication between culture and society, between literature and uh, social issues, race, class, uh, colonialism, imperialism. Gender, uh, and I think that's something we share uh, between the two programs too. Just as a sort of sign of our solidarity, uh, this book I'm, I'm co-edited a book series at the University of Pittsburgh Press called Illuminations. You all remember that famous collection of essays by Walter Benjamin and Benjamin's idea of illumination, illuminations, cultural formations of the American Latin American cultural studies. 
Uh, and we just published a book by a person called, who I don't know personally, but Lisa Blackmore, on uh, Spectacular Modernity, Dictatorship, Space, and Visuality in Venezuela, 1948 to 1956, which is a, a kind of interesting story about the uh, co-relationship between modernist architecture in Venezuela in the 1950s. Those of you who have been to Caracas know that it has some pretty spectacular modernist uh, agriculture, mainly constructed uh, paradoxically during the period of one of the most uh, heavy dictatorships uh, uh, in the early 50s, the dictatorship that sort of modern Venezuelan politics has been trying to get away from for the last 50 years. So that's and Lisa Blackmore, it turns out, was a student here. John Kronioskis was director of this thesis. I guess this is the thesis turned into a book. So I think it's a kind of symbol that interesting that this came out uh, uh, just before my visit. So I grabbed a copy from the press and donated it to you. So I'm going to pass that around so you can. <laughs> Yeah. This is the kind of work we like to encourage, and obviously the kind of work is sometimes associated with your department and program, and the Berkeley program, too. Um, so, probably, as John said, I, I did start as my career as a Hispanist. I was a specialist on the, uh, the Spanish Baroque poet Gogora. That was my, my doctoral dissertation was on Gogora. And I've maintained a kind of interest in the Baroque uh, period, roughly the 17th century. The Baroque kind of is a cultural superstructure of Spanish uh, absolutism and imperialism uh, all through my career. But at some point or another, probably with the Nicaraguan Revolution, uh, I decided to shift my interest to Latin America, and since then, without giving up completely Hispanic Peninsular studies, uh, I focused on Latin America and what might be called, sometimes is called Latin Americanism, which could be defined as the, the theoretical elaboration in the, in the Academy of Latin American Studies. In other words, what's the, acad the academic is clear there, because we don't mean by Latin Americanism the idea that Latin Americans have about themselves, or different forms of Latin American nationalism. We mean to refer by Latin Americanism to a specific movement within the intellectual sciences, the human sciences, uh, in the last 30 years, uh, uh, which itself is a product of uh, uh, this, the, what I'm going to try to focus on today, which is the coincidence between the emergence of what sometimes is called the genre of theory, or theory, usually with quotation marks around it, meaning basically structuralism and post-structuralism, and uh, post-colonial and anti-colonial struggles in the 1960s, right? The moment of the emergence of structuralism onto the international stage, uh, Elements of structuralism have been around for a long time. I mean, Saussure's book on structural linguistics is from the early 20th century. But structuralism as a sort of general intellectual phenomenon uh, with a kind of ideology associated with it. So that structuralism maybe has more effects 
ideologically and encouraging certain ways of thinking and doing in academic work than actually becoming a structuralist, right? I mean, I could say structuralism was fundamental to my intellectual formation, but beyond a certain point, I, I'm a literary critic, you know, structuralism is the higher and further reaches of Lacan or Levi-Strauss are completely impervious. <laughs> but not structure. I kind of got the idea of structuralism, and I'll try to share that with you uh, in some kind of uh, way today. Uh, but the other thing I should say is that uh, I like I'm a, I was born in '43, so I come of age uh, as a young man, a young person in the '60s. I'm a '60s person. Uh, uh, and one of the characteristics of 60s people is, uh, especially college kids, was uh, an attraction to political militancy, right, after a relatively dormant period in the uh, in American culture, and especially in the American university, because all the left-wing people had been more or less kicked out during the McCarthy period. But in the in the sixties, those ideas uh, start to come back. I study at the University of California, San Diego, uh, with among others the famous Frankfurt School philosopher Herbert Marcuse, big influence. So, uh, then a young and not very famous but interesting uh, literary critic called Frederick Frederick Jameson, uh, not yet. The Frederick James, but just a guy called Frederick Jameson who had not gotten tenure at Harvard and uh, was therefore teaching in California, San Diego. Uh, but my, the other side of that impulse uh, was uh, the idea of creating some kind of new actual political formation of the left in the United States. And as you remember, there are different versions of that ranging from Trotskyist to uh, the Weather Underground, the, the terrorist group Black Panthers. Uh, uh, and, but I was in one of those called the, the New American Movement. The New American Movement was sort of the, the good side of the Weather Underground. I mean, we were the same people, basically. We knew the Weather Underground people. But we rejected totally terrorism. We, our banner, a strange banner for the United States, was Gramsci. We had t-shirts, New American Movement, a big picture on Gramsci, optimism of the will or pessimism of the intellect on it. And our idea was, it kind of, in, and a lot of Communist Party people had come into the newer, older people, especially after the Russian uh, invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, when a lot of Communists who had hung on until then decided, okay, well, this isn't going to work. We we want to try to find a different way of articulating a, a left presence in American life. So it was a kind of union of new left people like myself and old left communists uh, uh, who were leaving the party after after 1968. Uh, and the idea was that to create a, a new a new American movement. Sounds like Trump, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, that would kind of become a small mass more party uh, for the promulgation of a, the idea of socialist uh, possibilities uh, in the United States. And I dedicated about a decade to the 70s. Pretty much. I was teaching, but 
I was also going to a lot of meetings, and you know, those of you who have been involved in political stuff know what that's all about. Anyway, uh, that's I think an important part of my work, uh, which doesn't come out necessarily in the academic elaborate. We published this book then and that. That in, for a while it was related to a concrete political project and concrete political militancy to try to create. Uh, uh, a movement for socialism in the United States. Democratic, Gramscian, not... Uh, uh, then after that, it was solidarity politics in the 1980s when it was clear that that vision of a socialist alternative uh, was not going to prosper. Although some of it popped up was Bernie Sanders, right? Uh, I mean, if you want to understand the genealogy of Bernie Sanders, right? It kind of goes back a little bit to this uh, 70s sort of uh, solidarity politics became a kind of, uh, especially Central American solidarity politics. Then I published a book with a friend of mine on the role of literature in the, uh, John mentioned it, the role of literature in the Central American literature. So the ideological role of how literature functions or to mobilize uh, uh, sentiment in favor of uh, revolution. That book uh, came out uh, in 1990 with the standard kind of delays that are usual with intellectual publications, academic publications. Uh, uh, just, just after the Sandinistas had lost the national elections in Nicaragua. In other words, so the book was completely shattered. <laughs> there, there must be a, a garbage bin somewhere of academic books that have been destroyed. I missed their moment. So that book missed its moment, but I, I think it's an interesting book. Like trying to understand a little bit the force of the idea of nationalism. Uh, in uh, Latin American uh, politics, and I, I understand people have sort of taken it up again. You know, the, uh, but I think a characteristic of my work, number one, is that it's always been connected with the idea of a concrete political militancy. That is, that it might be possible to build a socialist movement of some sort or another in the United States. And secondly, with the frustration of that impulse. I mean, almost every time I write something or take a new theoretical position uh, or, or, or a new enthusiasm, by the time the book comes out, the thing will have been destroyed by history. My last, and it forms in a way the backdrop for these lectures, uh, enthusiasm was with the governments of the so-called Pink Tide or Maria Rosada uh, in Latin America. I really invested heavily in the Pink Tide, and not just as civil society movements, and, but as the state, you know, and the left taking positions in the state and trying to remake the society from the state. I was reading a lot of Hegel at the time, so it made sense to... Uh, and clearly, I think, as all of you who follow Latin America or international politics in general are aware of the, that the, the impulse of the Pink Tide to... Uh, create a new form of center-left uh, uh, statism uh, 
coming out of the big social movements that had emerged in Latin America in the 80s, 70s and 80s, 90s. The Indian movement, uh, the women's movement, uh, squatters' movements. Uh, but now, finding a political expression, instead of just being civil society, oh, we're making a demand from civil society on the state, now the demand is we need to occupy the state in order to get our demands met, right? That's, that's the Marea Rosada uh, formula, uh, which then is a new formula. Well, I'll talk more about it uh, as we go along, uh, because it's, as I said just a minute ago, it's the immediate context for uh, what I'm trying to uh, explicate here. Okay. Uh, So I understand I'm competing uh, in at least tomorrow afternoon with Zizek, who's one of your colleagues, and uh, uh, giving a lecture at the same time as I am. But, uh, and prob so probably some of you at least won't be here. But, uh, but in a way, that's good uh, in one way, because uh, Zizek and I kind of come out of the same matrix structuralism, post-structuralism, leftism, uh, and there is a lot, I think, uh, uh, that we share. Uh, uh, like Zizek, I spent a lot of time trying to decipher Lacan. I think he did a better job of it than I did, but there's a parallel. I mean, Zizek is a master thinker of sorts. Uh, but there are also some differences, uh, and uh, that notion of different possibilities of theory and politics uh, today, and what would be a significant difference, say, between the kind of ideas for the future I would espouse and the kind Zizek would espouse. So there's a zone of, certainly, connection between them. But I think a zone of difference too would be something I'd like to try to elaborate, especially in the last of the three lectures. Let me just briefly outline them, uh, what I have in mind for each one. Uh, today I had uh, suggested I wanted to talk about uh, this moment of coincidence between the onset of structuralism as a hegemonic. Uh, academic formation uh, and post-colonial uh, struggles. And the, the, the key articulator in that uh, uh, coincidence, uh, I'm going to say, is the Algerian Revolution. Uh, a revolution probably a lot of you don't remember all that well, or, but was at, a, at the time, especially in France, extremely powerful uh, uh, intellectual experience. Uh, I'm going to recall the, the movie about this called The Battle of Algiers, uh, a wonderful, not a documentary, but sort of semi-documentary film about the Algerian uh, struggle, uh, which if you haven't seen it, I think would be a great experience, which I think is certainly one of the great movies of, of all time, uh, The Battle of Algiers. Uh, 
but I also want to recall to you something I'm going to talk about a little bit more in the lecture on Friday, uh, the so-called 1961 massacre in Paris. Does anybody know about the 1961 massacre? Yes. Most people don't. Some people say yes, but... In 1961, a group of about 30,000 Algerians living in Paris uh, uh, demonstrated uh, in a massive uh, public demonstration against uh, the continued French uh, war uh, to hold on to Algeria. And the police, who had themselves were getting fed up a little bit, the French national police, with some Al terrorist attacks by Algerian militants on the police themselves reacted very violently and dramatically and slaughtered, openly slaughtered, just shot down right in the middle of Paris, right, the city of like, uh, about anywhere between 50 and several hundred demonstrators. The facts are not very clear. Uh, it's an event that's somewhat deeply buried in modern French history. You have to sort of scratch the surface. Now there's a monument, but... Uh, uh, many of the bodies were dumped into the river by the police and were found floating down the Seine, kind of in the same kind of way. I don't know if you have images of the military coup d'etat against Allende in Chile in 1973. That's what the army and police did with a lot of desaparecidos, right? They would kill somebody and dump them in the river. So you have these horrific images of bodies floating down. Well, that's... Chile, but also France, no, Paris, France, 1961. And Fanon's work, uh, The Wretched of the Earth, which I suggested is one of the readings uh, for today, and I'll talk more about it. It seems to be a, a very strong expression of uh, some of the things that are involved. Uh, even though questions uh, that uh, my mind tends to run in a very rambling kind of way, and I apologize for that, I'm not a systematic thinker or systematic uh, 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 presenter, uh, but I had thought of speaking about uh, uh, what we might call the, the, the Deleuzean or Spinozian turn in uh, cultural theory uh, of the last 10 or 15 years, right? Coming out of Deleuze's influential work, and Hart and Agri, the theory of the multitude, uh, uh, new ideas of revolution, new revolutionary subjects, post-national forms of territoriality or sub-national forms of uh, and all of that revolves, as you know, around the key concept derived from Spinoza of affect. And um, so I was going to postpone affect till uh, the third class, but now I find in putting the material together that maybe I'm going to need to say something about affect today because. If Fanon's book is about anything, it's about affect, right? Affect versus history. Uh, especially a Marxist sense of history, right? Fanon is a kind of a Marxist, but very anti-Marxist in the sense of history as stages of becoming and 
waiting things to ripen and develop. We'll talk more about that. And to, to, to kind of uh, frame Fanon, I should say a few words about uh, uh, the um, subalternist notion of negation, that the relationship of the peasant rebel to the ruling class is one of what in philosophical terms you could call simple negation. Uh, just to forecast that a little bit. Simple negation is different than dialectical negation. Simple negation is the kind of negation that the 19th century philosopher Feuerbach, anthropologist in philosophy, practices in his denunciation of religion, right? Feuerbach says religion is false, it's an alienated form of human possibility in religion, in ideas of God and holiness and the sacred human beings project a possibility that is already within them, the possibility of being together and experiencing the world. So simply by denying religion, simple negation, right? you recuperate that possibility. Hegel comes along and well, no, it's dialectical negation. Yes, you deny religion, but then the principle of religion returns in a higher level, you know, in a new form of uh, uh, culture uh, and into a form of the state. Uh, so I'm interested in the idea of simple negation, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, simple uh, uh, negation uh, today. That's kind of the, I, I, another way of putting this is subaltern negation. Kind of. Just saying, no, fuck it, you know, it's no good. Uh, uh, we don't want it. We don't believe it. Uh, we're going to trash it, as they say in this day. Not that we're, as a Soviet Marxist might say, we're going to raise it to a higher level. We're going to take the, the, the novel or the symphony and raise it to uh, bring the proletarian content in it sublate it in some kind of way into a new form of uh, national <coughs> mass culture. No, we're just going to trash it. Uh, uh, so I want to get some sense of that on the table, some, what, it, what simple negation means as opposed to dialectical uh, uh, negation. Okay, let me start with uh, structuralism. Uh, and. Uh, uh, Start by saying that, to, to refer to the, the title of my lectures here, uh, it's the politics of theory, by that I mean not only uh, a sense in which structuralism and theory, the rise of theory, uh, gives us a new way of thinking about politics through semiotics or whatever. But the theory itself, uh, as a place of uh, articulation, uh, is political. Doing theory is a political act, right? Uh, uh, 
instead of going, you don't go out on the street, you sit there and you write theoretical things, but somehow or another, according, this may be an illusion, maybe I'm speaking of an illusion here, uh, but it was certainly an illusion that a lot of us held, and in that sense it's worth thinking about. Uh, but the idea was that in some kind of way or another, by doing theory, by doing, by reading Althusser or Lacan or whatever, we were somehow advancing things uh, politically. So the politics of theory is that theory itself is a kind of politics. Now, what encourages that idea? I mean, why would anybody be so stupid as to say doing theory in academic classrooms is a politics, just the opposite, get out of the classroom and get out onto the streets uh, with your comrades. And, well, uh, there was a kind of radicalism uh, implicit in uh, the structuralist theory of the side. Uh, and as you know, if I had my little whiteboard, I put it up here, that, that structuralist theory of the sign has its origins in uh, Saussure's lectures on general linguistics from published around 1905, 1908, somewhere, somewhere in there. Student, student notes, right? Uh, and there you remember that uh, Saussure develops the uh, uh, very powerful notion of uh, 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 the arbitrary relationship between the signifier and the signifying. The signifier being the verbal or acoustic sign, and the signified being the thing in the world, so to speak, that the horse thing, that the sign, uh, the linguistic uh, sign stands for. Uh, and uh, so, unlike a sort of pre-Babelic theory of language, right, so sort of saying, the relationship between linguistic sign and signifier is arbitrary. Fair is horse, caballo, cheval. The signifier is arbitrary, but... but uh, so that's the way we usually understand it, right? The arbitrary relationship between the signifier and the signified. Uh, but it seems that there are is one more level to this, a level that I have the impression from reading British accounts of structuralism in the 70s, uh, the British never quite got, right? And I think it's because of the very strong uh, preponderance of uh, empiricism in British uh, uh, philosophical and theoretical thinking. Uh, this may be a slur, and I'm willing to retract it if I can see counter evidence, but at the time I was reading structuralism in the 70s, I had the feeling that the British commentators on structuralism didn't quite understand this second aspect of the arbitrary relationship between the signifier and the signifier. And that was a relationship that was often uh, expressed in the notion of, uh, by Saussure himself, in the notion of value. So value has to do with the way, again, I wish I had a board here, but let's say you have this level here. It's, I'm making wave light. This, that's the level of the real, what Lacan calls the real, right? It's 
not not symbolized. It's just what there is, right? Uh, um, what what is? It doesn't have any signs attached to it, right? The real is what resists symbolization absolutely. That's Lacan's famous formula, right? The real, capital R, is that which resists symbolization absolutely. Uh, and what happens then in Saussure's uh, theory of language, uh, which makes it primordial for the structuralist enterprise, is that there is a notion of uh, uh, a network that sort of hovers above the real. It, it's the network of the symbolic, uh, the semiotic, uh, uh, and then cuts out different you imagine a sort of cutting instrument, right? Uh, uh, and so that in the network of the semiotic, uh, the uh, the sign, which is a, a material thing, right, is horse. Uh, and then in the real, there's some space that's cut out by horse, right, that corresponds uh, but that, that's okay, that, <coughs> that there are things in the world and that there are just different ways of, you know. Uh, but Saussure's notion, which is true, exists sort of at the edges of translatability, right? Like why the French have a word, fleuve, for some kind of river that doesn't go to the sea, whereas we talk about rivers as necessarily being things that go to, so there's a different conceptual density involved in each thing. Uh, the, the basic idea, though, is that uh, it's not only the relationship between the signifier and signified that's arbitrary, the level of the signified is arbitrary, too, and created by the process of signification itself. So we don't have a, we can't have a perception of the real because we are already, so to speak, Lacan would describe this in edible terms, in language, right? Uh, and therefore, it's impossible for us to think of, a, 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 so to speak, a non-horse, right? Uh, but it's not clear that somebody with a different kind of consciousness would necessarily perceive the difference between horse and field in the same kind of way it seems almost universal to perceive the difference between horse and field in languages. So that there is, that's the British empiricism thing, right? There is something called a horse. And okay, so Sewer is thinking about different fancy ways to name that, but it's naming something that already exists in the world as a tangible, conceptual, and physical uh, entity. <clears throat> so it's easier to think of this in terms of the color spectrum, right? Uh, and um, so we take orange, and we would have no difficulty in most of the languages, I think we're probably aware of in this room, of finding a word which in each of those languages 
designate something that probably most of the speakers of that language, of those those languages, would have. So that assumes feel that there is a positivity kind of in the world, uh, orange or red or brown or the color spectrum itself, right? The light itself seems to create its own semiotic system when it goes through a prism. You don't need culture to do that. So, um, but in a way, it's arbitrary, right? Uh, because somebody will say, well, what is orange? And instead of pointing to something positive, uh, orange is a certain range of the spectrum or something like that. It, it is, but it's not clear that's what makes it orange, right? That's what makes orange. It's just a range of the spectrum. Uh, what, um, what makes it positive is a negation. That, that was Cicero's claim. Right? So orange is not red. Oh, okay. So what's red? Well, red is not brown. Oh, okay. So what's brown? Brown is not orange. Uh, uh, it's and etc. Right. Uh, so that the only thing that sustains uh, linguistic signified signified in language is a, a not. That's the point, I think, that the British empirical tradition didn't catch. Even at the same time, they were taking up structuralism very enthusiastically, right, uh, in the early 70s. They didn't catch that it's a non-empirical theory of objects uh, and experiences, right? uh, a theory that depends on the notion of a prior signifying system into which we're introduced. Uh, and which and which is a system that operates by negation. It's, it's simply those negations uh, uh, constitute in their totality, right, or, or their totalization, uh, a, a, um, a structure. Not, 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 not. A structure of negatives. Uh, and a structure that in some, some kinds of ways is maintained by uh, in any given cultural or linguistic situation by force. You keep calling that orange, you're speaking to your child, it's not orange, that's red-brown. No, I think it's orange. Red-brown, okay, okay. Red -brown. Uh, so I want to bring in the question of force here uh, because uh, I want to suggest that in the structuralist notion of the sign itself, there's a certain sense of the force of the signifying system intervening into the real and cutting it. That's the word that Saussure liked a lot. Coupure. Cut. Coupé. Uh, the level of the real in some kind of way. It's a cutting. Uh, Almost like the idea of cutting and Freudian ideas of castration, right? So, a violence or of some sort is being performed and then being maintained in a certain sense by, a, by another violence, which is the violence of the, of the order of culture and language uh, itself. What happens? Well, there's male and female. We know what that is, right? Uh, 
they all said this, and females are that. So what if you say, oh, oh I don't buy into that. That's the new, the new idea, right, the transgender idea. I don't want to be either male or female. Uh, no, you've got to be one or the other. It's okay to go from being male to female or put from female to being male, but you can't be neither. Uh, but in a way, you can't. I mean, in a way, it's it's only a kind of cultural force that enjoins. There's no essential difference between male and female, as Darkness would say. Right? It's a it's a a relationship of not what is male. Male is not female. What is female? Female is not male. Uh, male is phallic. <coughs> not phallic, etc. Right. Uh, okay. So that that's kind of a radical idea, it seems to me. The idea that uh, the world we perceive and the way we perceive ourselves as subjects, I, I want, I plan, is kind of arbitrary, or is based on a sort of fundamental arbitrariness. The, the, the Spanish would bring in here the great Spanish play, really one of the great plays of Western theater, Life is a Dream by Pedro. Yes, life is a dream. Everything's based on dreaming and fantasy and fiction. But nevertheless, you've got to play out your role correctly, right? And if your role is the role of being a man or being a woman, uh, you've got to play that out. It's arbitrary, but Lacan has a little bit of this too, a kind of reactionary structure. <coughs> being male or female, those are arbitrary, but nevertheless, they're destinies. But in the basic idea of structuralism, you think there's a certain kind of radicalism. And it's a kind of radicalism that might coincide, say, with the radicalism of something like the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which you remember is going on all through the 60s, right? in which, uh, speaking the best one could say about it, I mean, there are a lot of problems with the Chinese Cultural Revolution, but you can say that at least one dimension of the Chinese Cultural Revolution was that it might be possible to remove uh, from society all of the discriminations and distinctions which had structured hierarchies of class, gender, city versus countryside, manual versus intellectual labor, and so forth and so on, and just create a sort of generalized egalitarian society in which a difference was no, no longer registered as uh, hierarchy. Okay, so then I said I would uh, connect this with... Uh, uh, okay, so then there is there is from this idea, uh, and, and I think you can see the logic of it, right? The notion that uh, Marxists used to think, talk about the union of theory and practice, right? Marx is there in the British Library, right around the corner here, uh, writing Capital and developing theories of falling rates of profit and stuff like that. And somewhere else, uh, the British Workers' Movement is organizing against the or in favor of the eight-hour day, right? The, the struggle for the eight, the working day. There. Those of you who have read Capital know that the struggle for the working day, which is basically a kind of testimonial section of Capital, uh, is a big chunk of uh, Capital. And, and it's about 
legal struggles of workers to say, well, what is a working day? The boss says, well, a working day is 12 hours. And the workers say, wait a minute, 12 hours? I don't think so. You know, let's make it shorter. Uh, and that's law, politics, uh, uh, so forth. So that's the unity of theory and practice, right? Uh, and Marx derives his concept of relative surplus value from the struggle over the length of the working day. Since the capitalist can't just make profits by extending the amount of time you work, oh, in eight hours you'll repay what we needed to pay you. Uh, uh, but to make any profit, we gotta you got to work for a couple hours more, ten hours, say. Then the last two hours is ours. Uh, now, if you can't do that, if the law says eight hours, then you can just, uh, uh, you can't lengthen the working day, but you can lengthen the productivity of any given moment in time of the working day, right, by introducing technical innovations that allow production to happen faster with less investment. That's relative surplus value, right, as opposed to absolute surplus value, the key distinction in capital, uh, and one that's based on this idea of the unity of theory and practice. The labor movement is fighting over here for the shortening of the working day, and over there Marx is observing a change in the structure of capital itself, which is a consequence of that reducing the labor day to, to eight hours. Uh, but now we talk, about, we talk about something different, which is, to use the phrase that the, the the great French philosopher of the time, Louis Althusser, used theoretical practice. Not the unity of theoretical theory and practice, but theoretical practice. That is a practice in theory itself. Uh, <coughs> okay, I'm going to mention it here quickly, and then, because I want to get to the post-colonial section, two key, I think, texts that are connected to this moment uh, of structuralism fading over at one edge into uh, uh, radicalism, uh, Maoism. Uh, uh, one is, uh, which I think probably many of you are familiar with, is uh, the famous, rightly famous, essay by Jacques Lacan called The Mirror Stage. If you don't know that essay, you need to, you need to read the mirror stage. Uh, fundamental uh, kind of essay. Uh, in a way, Lacan's engagement with existentialism and his attempt to get beyond, which was a dominant uh, intellectual ideology in France in the 60s. So the mirror stage, you remember, is structured. It, it's really almost like a medical essay, right? And I think it has its origins. It's a medical essay Lacan wrote in the 30s, uh, uh, which is uh, that scientists uh, observe uh, with um, young animals uh, and young human children that if they see the image of themselves in the mirror, there is a moment of what Lacan calls jubilant assumption. <laughs> jubilant assumption. And uh, this, for Lacan, in relationship to human subjects, is particularly important because Lacan buys into a theory. Again, this is a hard 
a hard one for Brits and Americans to swallow, uh, that uh, uh, human development doesn't come from within. It's not the integration of faculties and sensations uh, that happens over you know a period of when you go from one thing to another thing. Uh, uh, a kind of organic model of human uh, development. Uh, you process your experiences, right, and then that kind of way become uh, wiser. And it comes, it's just imposed on you from without. And the image that Lacan uses is the image of the, you've all seen those pictures by Salvador Dali, right, where there's some kind of amorphic, egg-like uh, thing that doesn't have any inner structure, right? <clears throat> Premonition of the Spanish Civil War is probably the most famous. But there are a lot of Dali paintings like this. No inner structure. It's just a... Uh, so in order to prop this up, uh, there are these sticks, kind of arbitrary sticks. Some of them fancy sticks, some of them just sticks that somebody found on the ground stick it in there and stick it in there and then that kind of holds the sack, the amniotic sack in some kind of, some kind of, well that's, that's Lacan's model of the subject, right? The subject is this completely shapeless, uh, with no capacity of internal organization that somehow is structured from outside. Uh, I forget the word he used, but it's that word you use when you break your leg or and you have to put something on that'll support it. It's a prosthesis. Uh, the human subject requires a prosthesis to function. Uh, this has to do with the question, it's a medical question, I don't know anything about that, that apparently human subjects uh, are not viable when they pop out of the womb, that they require a certain period of protection and so forth and so on. In other words, they're not fully formed uh, as something. So the mirror stage, in the, what happens in the mirror stage, the mirror could, the mirror is a, an allegory, almost like a Baroque allegory, right, for something in which for the first time it could be the face of your mother or the face of your parent uh, or your caregiver or an actual mirror where something gives back to you an image of yourself for the first time. So then you're aware of yourself as a self, and that's the jubilant, uh, the moment of uh, jubilant assumption. However, there is a problem, uh, which the structuralists usually use the word meconnaissance for, a bad recognition or a misrecognition, hard to, a misknowing, mis, uh, uh, because the, the image is not you. Right. The image is outside of you. It's uh, it's reversed. It's not your left to right. It's uh, and between then that sense that the subject is constituted by a sign, the the image in the the image in the mirror is a signifier uh, in a structural sense. Uh, and you're the signified that the, that the image in the mirror conjures up. It's me, uh, the self. Uh, uh, not from 
inside, but from outside. The self is not organic to the self. Because there is this gap between signifier and signifier, and instability, this is the area that, Foucault, that Derrida would explore most famously, right, in his notion that between signifier and signified, there's an area of indefinition and uh, that the structuralists don't give enough attention to. Uh, but there, there's an instability there. Well, Lacan talks about the instability. And it's the instability that is, on the one hand, uh, productive of anxiety as the basic condition of human identity, right? We're anxious. Uh, why? Because human identity is not ours in a certain sense, right? It's something imposed on us. Uh, not quite us. Uh, uh, and anxiety then leads to aggression. Uh, that the human self, again, this is a kind of Salvador Dali kind of thing. Uh, Lacan was acutely interested in Dali, right? Uh, premonition of the Spanish Civil War. Aggression was World War II, which by the time Lacan got around to rewriting and publishing this paper around 1947 had just happened, and seemed to Lacan to invalidate the, the whole idea of a existentialist ethical engagement with the world, right? No, you have to really accept that human beings were constructed in this space of uh, fantasy, uh, misrecognition, uh, and involved in their very constitution an element of aggression and, uh, and alienation. Okay, so that's one. That's Lacan's essay. So, uh, the second essay is Althusser's essay on, uh, called Notes on Ideology. It exists in a lot of different versions, probably most of you have seen it in one version or another, but basically that's the core, Notes on ideology. And that's the famous essay where Althusser uh, takes up the question of ideology from classical Marxism and kind of inverts it, right? And says where ideology is sort of the false consciousness uh, that sustains uh, uh, a ruling order. Uh, ideology, again, this is Althusser's reading of Lacan, uh, is itself constitutive of the subject. So, you take up the, who, who, in classical Marxism you could say the difference between a worker and a capitalist is that a worker is somebody who has to labor for a wage or salary under conditions established by somebody else uh, in order to provide himself or herself uh, the means of life, right? In that sense, most of us are workers, right? Because, uh, we don't have capital in which, or property in which we can make make our own uh, make our own lives. And the capitalist then is the the property owner, the person who is in a position to purchase the labor uh, that is there to be provided. That's workers on the one hand, people who have to alienate their labor, their their energy, their vitality, their capacity, and capital, a kind of vamp vampire that sort of sucks, um, sucks that up. Uh, 
and that's constituted by the wage-labor relationship as determined by the market. So it's, it's not that capitalists are nasty or fits, it's just the way the market works. And it's free. You're not bound, right? theoretically. There's no law which says you have to work eight hours a day or, or sell your labor for, you know, for whatever. And there's no law that capitalists have to buy your labor either. It's just the logic of the market, the capitalist production and investment. So Althusser says, yeah, but what has to happen for, at the factory or the workplace, for there to be a certain number of people who are, so to speak, constituted to be in a position of, and thinking it's a natural thing to do, uh, even they, they might have objections about this or that, to sell their labor power. They might even be proud of that, proud, the proud worker, you know. Uh, uh, and on the other side, people who think it's a natural and good thing to do, uh, Adam Smithian sort of, uh, to provide uh, labor, to sell, to be in a position to buy labor. This is a, very much a question for today, right? Because if, if I understand, and I'll talk more about the new right-wing populism, um, on Monday, uh, uh, the demand that stands behind somebody like Trump uh, from the work from a working class point of view, or Brexit to the extent that it had significant working class support in England, uh, is the demand for jobs, right? We want jobs. Jobs is what makes our life meaningful. Uh, so we want to sell, we want to be able to be in a position to sell our labor power. And we want a politics that will encourage that. Okay, that's where Althusser would say ideology enters the wage-labor relationship, the wage-capital relationship itself. Because to be in that kind of situation, you have to be constituted as a subject in the kind of way Lacan thinks about being as constituted as a subject in the mirror state. Uh, and the, the, the way you're constituted as a subject in the field of the social is through ideology. And ideology works essentially through culture. Cultural studies. Uh, one of the... Uh, the the classic works of the Birmingham School, not using at all this structuralist model, but uh, but pushing in this in a similar direction was learning to labor. Uh, how young British young people are brought up to become workers, to become workers. That's what kind of cultural inputs, music, uh, values, dress, etc., language. Or... Who did learning for labor? Paul. Paul Willis? Okay, let's shift to uh, post-colonialism. Uh, so, great post-colonial struggles have been going on since 1945 into the 60s. 
the Algerian War is big. Certainly affects the structuralists more or less to the extent that they're more or less French, more or less directly. Uh, the United States is tied up in the Vietnam War, uh, big war, a lot of people dying. Uh, Cuban Revolution, 1959. Uh, and I would throw into the pot uh, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. That obviously requires probably more discussion, but certainly it was a, a movement of transformation that was uh, happening uh, with good and bad consequences in a significant uh, part of the world. Uh, and the African revolutions. The Algerian revolution was an African revolution, but there were obviously a lot of other ones going on, the movement against apartheid in South Africa. And uh, Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, Franz Fanon, it was a, a French-speaking, from Martinique, the Latin, Latin American from the Caribbean, right? a Latin American intellectual. We would call him a Latin American intellectual anyway. Uh, uh, become, uh, goes to Algeria and is a psychiatrist and works with, uh, as a psychiatrist, was people who have suffered traumatic experience on both sides of, uh, from uh, being involved in the Algerian war. So there's a famous final section, I encourage you to read it if you haven't yet, of the Wretched of the Earth, which are Lacan's reports, psychiatrist reports on different patients that he's had in his practice in Algeria. Some of the patients are freaked out or traumatized because they've been torturers. torturing these people, and that freaks me out. And some of the people are freaked out because they were tortured, right? Lacan seems not to put a particular, as a physician, a particular value on which is the worst, the better or the worst way of being freaked out. They've been freaked out. They need therapy. Uh, and that's a very interesting section, but that most people don't read. But uh, because it says that for Lacan, what's essential in colonial wars, like the Algerian War, is uh, the psychological experience of being involved in it. Traumatic, uh, ressentiment, uh, all these terms that today we would more likely associate with uh, affect. The word, the term, the idea of affect. Anger. Not anger is an emotion, but a sort of state of unhappiness or distress that you live in as a colonial. So anger would be an emotion, right? Whereas the affect theory people always like to, we'll come back to this uh, later, but make a distinction between emotions and, and affects. Uh, a, a state of being, right? Uh, Ressentiment in the Nietzschean sense is resentment is more like an affect than an emotion. So, in the famous first section of uh, The Wretched of the Earth, Le Damne de la Terre, from the biblical uh, Sermon on the Mount, I think, right? The phrase. Uh, uh, the poor in spirit, right? 
Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, it will be the poor in spirit that will inherit the kingdom of God. Who are the poor in spirit? The subaltern, the damne de la terre. Uh, So the first part of the book is about violence, uh, called On Violence. And it's basically a philosophical, uh, I wouldn't say defense, but more like an injunction uh, for the presence of violence in anti-colonial, uh, in anti-colonial what do I mean by the difference between a defense and an injunction? In a defense, somebody would say, oh, well, uh, colonial wars sometimes have to use violence, terrorist means uh, for tactical or strategic reasons. They don't have the big armies, you know, and so forth and so on. So maybe they have to blow up a cafe or something like that uh, uh, to, make, to make their force uh, felt. Uh, so it's colonial violence is defensible in means ends rationality terms. But that's not what Fanon has in mind. Uh, Fanon says that because the conditions of colonial subjugation are themselves violent and impose a sort of regime of violence uh, on the, the subjected populations, uh, it's only through uh, violent resistance and eventually revolution, uh, that the colonial subject will become free, will become decolonized, to move beyond. If the colonial subject becomes, so to speak, nominally free, in other words, there's a colonial bourgeoisie, you can see that Fanon's real enemy in the, uh, in the wretched of the earth is not so much the colonized colonizers as the new bourgeoisie which appears in the space of the nominally independent new nation state right? uh, as representatives of the new nation uh, but who still have basically a colonial mentality right? they have internalized a colonial mentality and are, are not prepared really for the task of creating a new government or a new culture or new forms of life uh, just are going to repeat the old formula, but so to speak, dressed in different uh, different clothes. So, how do you get around that problem? Well, for Fanon, violence is the way to get around it. Violence is liberating. Violence is cathartic. Violence is not only strategically necessary in military terms; it's psychologically necessary uh, to produce a new kind of subject. Now, it seems to me that here, but we've already seen this in a way with the, with the idea of Kupur uh, in Saussure, that in what seems like a purely structural or purely historical operation, so that we understand colonialism as a historical phase and different phases within that. And, uh, a kind of uh, the affective is already present, right? Uh, a, a, a Marxist and many Marxists of the time in the early 60s 
French Communist Party, probably the British Labor Party. Well, the British Labor Party still did that in the Iraq War, right? As I understood it, the majority of the British Labor Party supported the Iraq War. But I remember seeing that on American TV, you know, the Council of the British Labor Party and people debating pro and con whether we should, the British Labor should support the Iraq War, and they voted to support it. No, stupid decision, in my opinion. But they did. And how did they support it? Well, socialism is a higher ideal, you know, and uh, if we win in the Iraq war, Iraq will be able to benefit from, you know, the altruism of uh, uh, socialism and uh, social democracy. And that's good, right? Uh, uh, well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't a good idea, and the intervention didn't exactly, the intervention probably blew up in some kinds of ways, labor more than a, that's a different discussion. I want to get into local politics, but certainly Hillary Clinton has suffered grievously because she supported the Iraq War. I mean, why did Hillary lose the election to Trump? Well, one of the reasons she lost the election to Trump is that she supported the Iraq War, and almost everybody in the United States thinks the Iraq War was a real disaster. Uh, she doesn't support it. You say, oh, I made a mistake, but too late, you supported it. You know? um, okay, so uh, uh, we were talking about Fanon. Uh, uh, there's an element of affect there. It's just anger, ressentiment. Uh, it, it isn't thinking in terms of stages of history the way a Marxist Vanguard Party might think, you know, well, we'll take this anger and we'll channel it into a, uh, a higher vision of socialism. Algeria will be better off under a, a French socialist communist government, right? When the popular front sort of returns to French life. Uh, uh, so, and Marxists have that notion of history as moving through different stages, right? Uh, in that sense, Marxism itself buys into the notion of history as progress and the state as the, the place where progress uh, cons consolidates. Um, uh, whereas the kind of colonial anger that, or ressentiment, uh, that Fanon is talking about, doesn't seem to participate in this narrative of progress uh, or development. Uh, it, it, it might produce progress or development if the colonial subject is capable of overthrowing the colonizer. Uh, but it, it, that's not its logic. It, its logic is not to produce a sort of, so to speak, higher order of society. Its logic is uh, a logic of simple inversion, like the Sermon on the Mount says. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Those who were in power before, and rich, and comfortable, are now going to be put down, and those of us who were suffering and uh, low before are going to be on the, on the top. That's it. No subtleties, no argument about dialectical sublation, you know, no, just simple inversion, right? Uh, 
and, th and that, to come back, I don't want to dwell on this too much because we can get into it later, and I, I know I'm probably reaching the limits of your patience right now. Uh, this kind of logic, which the great subaltern studies historian, Ranaji Guha, G-U-H-A, Guha, sort of the, the main man of subaltern studies, and his book called Elementary Aspects of Peasant Insurgency in Colonial India, I think is a, a, a massively powerful, on a scale of Foucault's discipline and punish, but hardly known in the Western Academy, right? Barely known in the Western You could speak to dozens of historians, and if they don't know about Indian history, nobody has heard of Gukha's uh, elementary aspects of peasant insurgency. But the most fundamental aspect of peasant insurgency in Gukha's history, we'll talk more about this tomorrow, because tomorrow I'll be focusing more in detail on subaltern studies and cultural studies, is negation. That's the word for the title. And, and negation is the essential uh, aspect of And negation is not, a, uh, is not oh, we're going to create a new peasant state. Negation is we're going to occupy the plantations, kill the plantation owners, maim them if possible, burn down all the beautiful cultural artifacts that they've collected, uh, and in some way or another redistribute the land afterwards. Uh, burn the archives. Yeah. One of the first things the Zapatistas did in their rebellion was burn the archives. Whereas the Marxist historian would say, wait, wait, the, the archives are a precious repository of subaltern, you know, we can no, burn, burn the archives. So that's a kind of Simple negation, I think, or uh, non-dialectical negation, that it seems to me is, is Fanon theorizes in the first part of uh, The Wretched of the Earth, uh, the section on Ireland. It's not ahistorical or anti-historical in the sense that Fanon is trying to talk about what are the conditions necessary for a new historical, a really new historical subject to, to emerge, a, a historical subject that that could be egalitarian, that could transcend uh, colonial difference, but they could also transcend the ways in which anti-colonialism becomes simply a repetition of what was traditional before and defended by reactionary sectors of traditional society, right, as uh, anti-colonial in some kind of way or another. But the logic of colonial, anti-colonial transformation and phenomenon. It's not a historicist logic, right? And I'll, I'll just finish with invoking that idea of anti-historicism uh, and anti-humanism uh, uh, by recalling the title and again sending you in that direction if you don't know it already. Uh, it's a famous essay by uh, Althusser that appears in a collection of his essays called Four Marks. Great essays, in my opinion. Uh, but almost gone. Right? Uh, uh, called Marxism is not a humanism. 
So that might be a good place to stop. We'll take a break and then come back together in 15 minutes or so. Yeah. Okay. Like uh, uh, John's uh, outline of, um, let's say, theoretical developments uh, with regards, on the one hand, to structuralism, and on the other hand, to post-colonialism, uh, as, as John mapped it out, taking us, on the one hand, to the notion of interpolation uh, in Althusser, that is, out of, if you like, his account of signification, the process of signification associated with structuralism, underlining, of course, the whole question of force involved in that, which I thought was very illuminating. And even though one teaches this kind of material sometimes, I hadn't quite thought about it in this way. Uh, and especially in terms of, and this is uh, something which... Uh, uh, obviously it's just a ridiculous blindness on my part because of course I was deeply involved in if you like subalternism with John uh, uh, but had never really picked up on this notion of uh, simple negation. Uh, uh, John's book uh, The Latin Americanism after 9-11 um, uh, has come out in a Spanish version published in Bolivia and it's called uh, something like La Interrupción del subalternismo, and so that, that simple negation could be thought of as a, an interruption, and of course one can think about it, for example, as things that I am deeply interested in, in terms of the interruption of, the, of a dialectic, and the interruption of, if you like, historicist notions of, of development, for example, so, you know, I found all of that uh, very, very interesting. Uh, so that's, if you like, force and signification via Lacan, into interpolation. And on the other hand, uh, if you like, via uh, effect and, let's say, uh, the, you know, the somewhat therapeutic aspects of violence uh, in the way that Fanon talks about it as a simple negation, <laughs> so to speak. In other words, the, the simple negation of colonialism in that sense. Of course, the violence uh, is constitutive, of course, uh, uh, of, of subjectivity, of the revolutionary subject in, uh, in, in, in Fanon's uh, essay on violence. So what I wanted John to do, if it were possible, given that I and many others, I assume, are kind of Latin Americanists of some kind or other, uh, as if we could begin to Latin Americanize the discussion a little bit. And I thought there's two ways of doing this. And I've consulted John, of course, before, before, before coming here to see if it was okay. Uh, and there's two questions. One, if you like, the post-colonial question in Latin America, and when John referred to Fanon's critique mainly of an emerging national bourgeoisie it, uh, in, in uh, Algeria, etc., what occurred to me, of course, was uh, Anibal Quijano's notion of the coloniality of power. Uh, and his critique of the coloniality of power is precisely what John, uh, in a sense, what John was referring to earlier uh, as, if you like, um, uh, the emerging national bourgeoisie who weren't really going to change anything as such. And in many ways, Quijano's critique is that the post-colonial nation-state 
in Latin America has been defined by the the rearticulation of colonial of, of of colonialism in especially cultural forms. Racism, are the most obvious. So, so if John could say something then about Anibal Quijano, and if you like this notion of this version of decolonialism de in Latin American theory associated with Aníbal Quijano, of course working from the 60s himself as a sociologist. And then secondly, picking up on the other dimension, the other trajectory uh, of structuralism through Althusser and interpolation, and of course most famously one might say that the person who develops that theoretically is something that's very relevant to us today is of course the theory of populism developed by Ernesto Laclau which is if you like a, a very real development of if you like the Althusserian notion of um, of, um, of interpolation uh, and if you like uh, the, the work of the imaginary so to speak and the constitution of, uh, of uh, subject so Two <laughs> Latin Americanizations of the discussion so far, John, if that was possible. If you could say, I asked this because I know John knows something about this. <laughs> uh, so if, if you could maybe just say a little bit about both, and sure. then we can open it up to, to, to you. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting to think of the post-colonial from the Latin American side of things, although because the force of post-colonialism as a discourse has been mainly Anglo, the, the post-Anglo uh, empire. empire, yeah. Uh, and there are so many brilliant post-Anglo empire intellectuals like Gayatri Spivak or Homi Bhabha. Uh, that seems to have dominated the uh, discussion. And as usual in Latin America, we're you know, Hegel made that famous map where, right, the line of universal history goes through mainly northern cities. I mean, Henry Kissinger revived it in the, in the 70s. History goes through Moscow, Washington, Beijing, but, but not through Latin America, right? Latin America is the South. And nothing that happens in Latin America is really all, it, all that important. Right? Uh, but there is, as John suggests, an interesting experience in Latin America, which maybe gives us a certain insight on things that the, the Anglo-dominated school of post-colonialism doesn't have, which is that, as many Latin American intellectuals point out, when post-colonialism sort of rears its uh, head, uh, Latin America has been post-colonial since about 1825. <laughs> Uh, in other words, they had wars of independence, they established uh, independent nation states, uh, and na new national cultures. And, uh, in fact, it's very hard to distinguish what we call Latin America from that early post-coloniality, right? Because before the Baroque period is really a colonial, dominantly a colonial, predominantly a colonial culture. Uh, but, uh, you know, as John suggests, the results have been mixed. Uh, the doctrine of coloniality of power by Quijano is 
basically the idea, I'll refer this again to this in my lecture on, on Friday, uh, that uh, even after the formal structure of colonial rule as such is ended, as happened in Latin America in the 1820s, mainly in the 1820s, or in the United States in 1776, right? Uh, structures that were implanted by colonialism, particularly by settler colonialism, where large sections of population from uh, European countries uh, uh, settled, actually, in the colonial. Uh, uh, not the case of India, for example. Right? You could wipe out the whole British population of India in 1920, and you'd still have a, a very vital uh, functioning uh, country, or you know, a lot of African countries, same. Because the biological basis of the population wasn't transformed by colonialism, right? Uh, but that, that, so what happens in Latin America is a kind of, uh, you couldn't do that in Latin America, right? Uh, uh, there isn't a residue of the native population uh, there is a residue of the native population, but it's certainly not a majority of the population uh, that could, would then come forward in the advent of a, of a moment of post-colonial change. So coloniality of power is the persistence of colonial forms of discrimination, thinking, etc., after formal colonialism itself is ended. And to extend this one step further, because I'm aware we're in a moment where we're sort of beginning to think as we tend to do in the humanities of a new post-paradigm. Humanities love post, right? So, because in commodity terms, our, our commodity value is what's the new post we have to offer, right? Uh, uh, so Richard Rorty once said famously, 15 years from now, if we're still talking about the same paradigm in the humanities, something is wrong, right? Because un paradigm shifts are sort of hard. But I think it's kind of like, I'll say something about this on Friday too for those of you who come to that. Uh, it's kind of like post-feminism, so I'll anticipate it here. And for those of you who may not be here on Friday, uh, have better things to do Friday night. Uh, uh, your colleague at King's College, or Berkbeck's, uh, Angela McRoby, has a famously addressed the question of uh, uh, post-feminism by saying post-feminism is, in a sense, anti-feminism, right? Post-feminism is the claim that feminism has now become so generalized, right, so much a part of everyday life and common sense that now you no longer need to talk in terms. In fact, it's quite... Uh, impolitic to talk about feminism and stuff like that. It's now feminism has been mainstreamed. And, but the post of post-feminism, McRoby suggests, is reactionary in the sense that it's meant to uh, take the radical edge out of the original uh, demand to the feminist movement and to try to accommodate uh, feminism, in fact make feminism part of the hegemonic structure of the neoliberal uh, world order because it's infected all the institutions of the neoliberal, the global order. The EU has feminist councils, the UN, so forth and so on. Um, so, 
what we can see in Latin American liberation, and I'll, I'll try to make this shorter now, uh, is uh, the operation of something that uh, one uh, American Indian intellectual, Ecuadorian intellectual, has called uh, a, a Creole imposture. Impostura criolla, for those of and that's the notion that, because it was predominantly the Creoles, that is the white Latin Americans of uh, European lineage, like Bolivar, maybe slightly mixed, but not too much, uh, uh, were the agents of uh, uh, the anti-colonial movement in Latin America in the, in the early 19th century, late 18th and early 19th century. Uh, and they clearly saw their movement in nationalist terms and in terms of the liberation of the nation, the whole nation, everybody in the nation, from Spanish, uh, archaic Spanish uh, domination. Uh, but they were mainly Creoles, right? They were mainly European, uh, Spanish-speaking, uh, Portuguese-speaking, uh, white, uh, mostly white. Uh, uh, informed by European culture, informed by the ideals of the Enlightenment. Uh, uh, and so the notion that in, that in making independence, colonial independence, uh, the Creoles were representing the nation is an, is an imposture, an impostura. Because the actual people that were colonized were not the Creoles. The Creoles are the product of immigrants. Uh, settlers, right? Uh, uh, the actual people that were colonized were the indigenous populations, uh, and the people who arrived in Latin America from Africa as slaves or in other ways that they arrived. Not all of them were slaves, right? Into Latin America, uh, those were the people who were actually colonized, and they do not appear as the protagonist of. Uh, the new post-colonial nation-state. So that's the problematic, as John suggested, of the national bourgeoisie that Fanon is trying to. There's a movement towards formal independence. A new class constitutes itself as representative of the nation. It creates a canon of Latin American or African or whatever literature and culture. It creates a national history. But functionally, large chunks of the population are still Outside the outside the sphere of power, so that uh, subaltern studies in the Latin American post-colonial studies in the Latin American context has the way to do with the way you intervene in the actual structures of power in Latin America to try to break that impasse, an impasse which has been in place. And which affected since the early 19th century, and which, and which affected the philosophy of the Latin American left. Let me just give uh, the Marxist left one quick example in that respect, so as not to dwell too much on this question. Uh, in Guatemala, which is a country that's predominantly Indian, the population is predominantly Indian, over 50% Indian, uh, 10 million maybe. Uh, uh, it was, uh, and the Indians speak about 20 different languages. So they're quite very, right? It's not one uh, Aymara, like in, or Quechua, like in Peru and Bolivia. It's 20. 
the traditional Marxist notion, this is where I'm beginning to come up against Zizek, right, the, the invisible, the specter that's hanging over us here. <laughs> uh, because here I, think I, here I think I could make a distinction with Zizek, right, that I was thinking, what, what is it that I have against Zizek? I mean, I don't, why don't I think Zizek is great, but I don't. Uh, I think of him as kind of as a wind-up doll, you know. <laughs> uh, okay, so here's one place. The traditional Marxist left in Guatemala would say the solution to the Indian problem is uh, that Indians will become proletarianized as capitalist uh, institutions begin to penetrate the peripheral economy and develop more widely, both in agriculture and industrial production. And then Indians will be integrated into that as wage laborers, uh, and um, that, that, that'll be the end of the Indian problem. The Indian problem will be solved by an acculturation that happens uh, with the development of capitalism, but which the development of socialism will simply carry forward to a new and presumably more egalitarian and, and, and beneficial uh, stage. Everybody will share in the national economy equally. The Indian problem disappears. Right? What anthropologists and liberation theology activists in Guatemala began to notice in the, at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s is that uh, Indians didn't want to be acculturated. Part of their resistance to capitalism, a resistance the left was counting on to draw them into struggle, came from the fact that they didn't particularly relish the idea of being plantation workers. A lot of them were plantation workers, and, but they didn't say, oh, that's our ideal. Our ideal is to stop being Indians and become plantation workers or work as maids in the city or work in factories. Quite the contrary. We don't like capitalism. We don't like what's happening to us. Uh, because it, it threatens us with acculturation, the loss of language, the loss of tradition. So all of that stuff is the, at the heart of a book I'll probably talk a little bit about tomorrow, which is Rigoberta's Menchu's famous testimonial narrative, I, Rigoberta Menchu. So in the face of that, then the left has to sort of rethink the Indian question in Latin America in general, and to say, well, are the Indians a kind of anachronistic remnant that the left, or survival that the left sort of has to maneuver around? Or if you want the Indian population to be, especially in those countries in Latin America where the Indian population is significant, like Bolivia or Guatemala or Peru, uh, then you, in some sense or another you have to bring their demands forward. And their demands are not necessarily that, to lose their identity by becoming proletarians. Right? Not that they're against becoming proletarians, but that's not their goal. Right? Whereas the Marxist historian might say, ah, they'll become proletarians and that way they'll be available for communism or socialism in a way that they weren't before because they were stuck in tradition. Same problem with peasants, right? Which is a broader problem in the world. Most people in the world today are still peasants, right? Still, this will end by the end of the century, but probably a, at least half of the world's population is, could still be described in some 
meaningful sense to remember as peasants. And that clearly they're being destroyed by capitalists, and capitalism feeds on the destruction of the peasantry. And, uh, uh, and, but socialism has a little bit of that too, right? Get, especially Trotskyism, right? Get rid of the peasants, the peasants are a reactionary force, uh, mired in religion and petty commodity production and local prejudice and... Private uh, property. Hmm? Private property. Private property. My little... What Marx had the famous phrase that peasants are a lump, lump a bag of potatoes, right? In the 18th Brumaire. The French peasantry was like a bag of potatoes. So it seems to be then that to rethink the logic of, in a post-colonial way, the logic of Latin American development, you have to at least go against those assumptions that are built into even the narrative of Latin American progressivism, of Latin American socialism, or Latin American communism. Uh, that's one, and that's the post-colonial uh, question. Uh, the Laclau question seems to be related to that, and I, I confess that I fell under the spell of Ernesto Laclau very early on, mainly via Althusser. I've been reading Althusser a lot, and Laclau seemed to be the expression in political and cultural philosophy of Laclau's ideas, which could be somewhat thorny and philosophical. Laclau was, uh, Althusser was very concerned with the category of science, which I wasn't particularly interested in, but I was interested in the implications of the questions about how you think about ideology and interpolation. So Laclau comes out of uh, Latin American populism. He is of the, at the beginning, very small group of uh, Latin American Marxists, or in Argentine Marxists in particular, who identified with Peronism. There was a great debate, a, a defining debate, I think, in the Latin American left in the late 40s uh, between the, the Argentine Communist Party and uh, the Peronists about whether the Communist Party was going to support Peron. And uh, as you know, uh, the uh, Communist Party decided not to support Peron. And Perón, in turn, turned on the Communist uh, Party. Uh, but there was a small group of Latin American intellectuals emerging mainly in the 60s, Laclau was one of them, who said, wait a minute, maybe the road forward in uh, Latin American socialism and communism is not through a simple rejection of uh, things like Peronism, uh, populism, more broadly speaking, uh, or the, this indigenous question we talked about uh, earlier. Mariategui had said many of the same things back in the 1920s, right, that Latin American socialism had to be different than Western socialism, in part because the future that Latin American socialism was struggling for in terms of indigenous values was the past. Right? Communism would evolve in some way or another in Peru, a reinstitution of the, the collective agrarian system, agrarian and political system called the IU, A Y W L U system, that had prevailed under the Incas and other 
uh, great empires. So socialism was not something that was sort of being brought into Latin America from Europe and therefore itself connected to colonialism, but had roots in the Latin American, authentic roots in the Latin American path. So in a similar kind of way, but in a very different context, a much more developed country, like I was saying, maybe the left needs to understand what's involved in a populist articulation, like Perón's articulation, and imagine ways in which it's able to channel the same enthusiasm and the same uh, forces from the popular sector that Perón was able to do. That would mean creating a kind of left-wing form of populism, if you want. Quite different than the old traditional communist or social democratic parties in Latin America, right? Which populism was not uh, a good thing. And that's a question we we can pose in, in general for, for my intervention here. Populism is used, particularly in relation to Trump or to Brexit, as a an automatic bad thing, right? If I read a magazine like The Economist, the magazine, magazine of neoliberal hegemony, which I, I read it faithfully, not the business stuff, that's pretty boring, but the political stuff. Uh, uh, populism is a, a clear, unambiguous bad thing, right? No, populism in all forms, populism is bad in Venezuela, populism is bad in the Philippines, populism is bad in the United States. The Economist hates Donald Trump uh, and thinks Donald Trump is dragging the United States down, uh, sort of like an inversion of Chavez. And, uh, Chavez dragged Venezuela down from the left, now Trump is going to drag us down uh, from the right. But there's a kind of prejudice built into the the uh, dislike for populism, which I would argue is a prejudice against popular politics per se. Prejudice generally formed, here Trump and I would probably be in agreement, from elite positions. Right? And that's in part because we're used to an elite position sharing, if not uh, Nietzsche's critique of resentment, right? You remember Nietzsche has this famous uh, critique of slave morality. Right? Christianity is bad because it it embodies the morality of the slaves against the morality of the masters or aristocrats, and the morality of the slave is based on resentment and resentment in affective terms. Right? Is uh, a kind of generalized sensation of being no good, not quite as good as, not fully vested with cultural authority, and being angry at those who have it. And those who have it are those who are more talented, more skilled. Uh, so resentment and simple negation are kind of connected with each other. Because right? mm -hmm. somebody who's resentful is just resentful of you because you have privilege, you have authority. And they don't. Right? Uh, uh, and I think we're, we've inter we internalize the critique of resentment, right, in the sense of uh, uh, thinking that resentment is a bad basis for thinking or politics. Uh, 
but I think the challenge maybe, and this has something to do with understanding, which I'm not complaining, I'm not pretending I do Islamic fundamentalism, is to understand what a politics based on resentment would be. A politics that's, whose essential basis uh, is resentment. Uh, now, that's populism. <laughs> populism would be the appeal. And the appeal that populism, like, that was like Lau's famous uh, argument, right? That populism is not a specific, an ideology that's specific to the right or left. It's a form in which a political movement tries to create what Gramsci would have called a historical block. That is, an, to lump under a single signifier, that's the equality, say. Uh, uh, a heterogeneous variety of social forces. Uh, I think the clearest idea of this in the United States was the idea of the Rainbow Coalition during uh, the, just when Jesse Jackson was a candidate for the president. Okay, the rainbow is blacks, uh, Hispanics, gays, women, uh, workers. Uh, the workers thing didn't work out so well. That's probably the problem today. But. That's a, that's a hegemonic articulation, right? The different heterogeneous forces with different interests nevertheless are defined in, along a, a chain of equivalence. And that chain of equivalence is equality, better living standards, uh, uh, multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is not just that which is already there in society, but that which is expressed now as a value. You want a society that's going to be multicultural. That's, and all these people, in some sense or another, are willing to be seen as multicultural. Uh, and that's the way the post-colonial thing crosses over into, I think, populism, right? Because indigenous, African-Americans, all have to be somehow or another fitted under this thing. You can't just say the Communist Party has the right idea and blacks will benefit if socialist or communist ideas come to the fore. They have to be... Okay, so that would have been a left articulation of populism and uh, I, I think uh, something like that uh, happens in Latin America with the so-called governments, of the governments of the so-called Maria Rosales, yeah, they mentioned before. Yeah. These are governments that don't come out of traditional socialist or communist parties, although they do involve elements of those parties, but are basically based on emerging, or traditional or emerging social movements, labor movements, peasant movements, uh, so forth and so on, and, and have something like a multicultural articulation. I mean, there is a sense in which, I mean, these two strands come together in the pink tide. I mean, in the sense that you could say that the pink tide, in, in many of its instantiations around uh, in Latin America, were both, let's say, Quijano-esque. In other words, anti-coloniality of power uh, on the one hand, and also on the other populist, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean, of a left. So, you know, so there is a strange way that, uh, if you like, these two strands of yours come together, come together in Latin America in the form, let's say, 
post-Althusserian populism uh, uh, on the one hand, and if you like, uh, Quijano-esque uh, uh, transformation of the post-colonial uh, into, into the particularly, let's say, uh, national democratic, anti-racist aspects of democracy. Uh, and anti-sexist uh, is a women's movement. Uh, exactly. Key, key uh, element absolutely. So you have, if you like, a, this rainbow, so to speak, you know, brings in both sides of, uh, uh, if you like, the uh, your 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 plotting of the story of <laughs> structuralism and post-colonialism. It just suddenly occurs to me now. So there is a right. <laughs> yeah, well, you, yeah, you asked the right question. Uh, there is a right-wing populism. We yes. know that. That's fascism, for example, is a form of right-wing populism. Uh, it, it does appeal to the people. It doesn't just appeal to a single group. Or it claims to speak in the name of the people as such. Uh, the people is not so heterogeneous as it is in Mouffe and Laclau. Because you would say that in a left-wing populism, multiculturality and feminism would have to be uh, primary. Uh, elements, uh, not elements that are subordinated to some other level of political hierarchy. You know, women can wait until after we've achieved socialism or national independence to get their rights. No, women's rights are, Indian rights are constitutive of what the populist movement, whereas fascism would say, forget about that, you know, women should go back to the home or whatever they say, you know. And obviously there's an element of that in Trump, right? I mean, it's useful to think of Trump as somebody who could quite easily, I think, become a fascist dictator. Uh, there's a great novel about this uh, from the 1930s by an American novelist called Sinclair Lewis called It Can't Happen Here. <laughs> well, it's happening. It's it's happening yeah. And it can't happen here that the government actually does become fascist and starts closing down institutions. And you could say Trump's just, that's a possibility that Trump can move in that direction, even without um, majority popular support. Remember, Hitler didn't get voted by a majority of the German population. He got voted by about 40 plus 42 percent in 1932, was it, if I have my history right? That's more than uh, most governments. From that <laughs> position, <laughs> he was it's able to... <laughs> it's kind of worrying. <laughs> he was able to uh, transform, right? Get the, cha the yeah, chancellor. The yeah. chancellor to accept him as... Uh, so something like that could, I, could one could imagine happening. Uh, in the United States, and there are aspects of Trump's movement that uh, those of you who might have been in the United States during that time and run into Trump crowds know that there was a certain edge of, especially young male youth, white young male white youth violence uh, around the Trump movement, that kind of aggressiveness, right? Uh, tough guy, punky, sort of... Uh, uh, that could, uh, when I saw that around my own campus in Pittsburgh, I thought these, if there are stormtroopers in the United States, they will beat these guys. So we should. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, any.
kind of following on from what we were just talking about, actually. My question is Could you about, speak a little higher, please? Oh, sorry, I've got a cold, so I don't want to spread my germs <laughs> too far. So sorry, everyone, in advance. Um, my question's about the size and the scope and the scale of decolonial projects, I guess. And it kind of comes from some of the reading that you recommended for, for the session. So I had a look at Fanon and Mignolo and uh, Young. <clears throat> some of them I'd seen already, some of them I was going back to. It's a good chance to go back to some of those texts. And I guess particularly in the Fanon and the Mignolo text, what struck me as I was reading through them was this idea of the colonial force or the colonizer as a spectral subject or, or a spectral kind of presence there, right? There was not a kind of, for me, a satisfactory definition of the colonizer, of what that is and what that means. That's right. Um, which may be an enactment of what colonization is, right? This kind of spectral presence of power that, that's not always kind of material, it's not there, it, it's felt um, kind of hovering over those texts. Um, but I guess it got me thinking about, you know, whether it's important to start, or, or whether this has happened and I don't know about it, thinking about um, defining that coloni that colonizer, giving a definition to that. Like when we think about the stuff of history, when we think about the people that initially went over to the Americas, are we thinking about the expelled Jews from Spain as colonizers? Are we thinking about the slaves that came over with the Spanish, not in the slave trade, but as the... As the um, uh, enslaved Moors, are they the colonizers? Um, can we expand this idea of decolonization to Europe? Is that is that important? Is that a conversation that we should be having, thinking about the kind of um, constitution of Europe from, from outside also um, as, as a negation, kind of coming back from where you started uh, in, in the beginning? Should we start thinking about this concept of Europe from Latin America, Latin Americanizing, like, like John said, uh, in order to kind of, I guess, give this discussion uh, maybe a, a little bit more, more of a kind of material nature? Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a real good question. I don't know Europe. I'm not a... Uh, well... Uh, I would say that the key issue in Europe becoming more difficult to resolve every day is the issue of the Islamic community. In why wasn't it possible for progressive forces in Europe to build political consensus? They tried to do this, but I think they failed. That would be in some sense or another uh, integrative or supportive of uh, uh, is Islamic uh, people in Europe or more non-Western people in Europe. Uh, that would uh, would be preventive of Islamic fundamentalism. Preventive of the idea that becoming an Islamic fundamentalist was a good thing to do for a young uh, teenager right? uh, from an Islamic family. A lot of young teenagers from Islam in Europe and in the United States say, ah, oh, great idea, I'm going to get involved with Islamic fundamentalism. And they, there are circuits that, that wasn't true, but obviously it has a lot to do with the collapse of socialism and social democratic uh, ideals and uh, but still I can't imagine a transformative political process in Europe today 
that, uh, and this comes back to the Lac Lau question, that isn't going to involve, especially in countries like England that have substantial non-Western uh, populations, uh, both Islamic and black, Asian, South Asian, uh, uh, that doesn't involve those. So, the spectrality question. Uh, well, th that's right. In a certain, uh, uh, there's a movie I'm going to talk about on Friday called uh, Caché, hidden by the Austrian film director uh, Michael Haneke, and it's based in part on uh, this uh, event that I spoke about earlier, the 1961 massacre in Paris, right? mm -hmm. uh, because uh, one of the characters in the film is the child of two Algerian uh, immigrants in France who were massacred, uh, and they were servants in the house of a rural bourgeois. Family and the rural bourgeois family decides to adopt the son. Majid is his name, and um, but their son, George, who's kind of the hero of the film. Uh, George is us. George is a literary intellectual. Runs a TV show about literature, discussions of poetry, Rambo, and postcolonialism. <laughs> George is us. George resents having this, as, as you would represent a young, uh, resent a younger sibling, right, that kind of sibling rivalry kind of thing, taking the attention that he had before. So he manufactures a complicated scheme to discredit the young Algerian boy in the face of his parents, to manufacture a kind of crime, uh, and the parents expel the Algerian boy, send him to an orphanage. And then 40, 50 years later, they, the two come back in contact with each other. But in a sense, George's whole history is based on the denegation or the disavowal of his own role in destroying the possibility of the Algerian boy, the possibility the Algerian boy might have had if the adoption had gone through and the Algerian boy had had the same kind of training and education. Uh, he had had, the Algerian now lives in one of those slums around Paris where the Islamic uh, population is, and black populations contain run-down slums and, uh, and has a son who seems to be inclined towards Islamic fundamentalism. And that's not made clear in the film, but... So, in a way, the, the narrative of France integrating uh, through culture, uh, the post-colonial subject is kind of effaced in the film, or inverted in the film. Uh, the power and uh, ease with which George moves in the world, which is the power of ideas and theory and literature, especially literature, especially a fact on literature and art, uh, is based on uh, the disavowal of this colonial subject. So in a way it's like, it's hidden, that's cachet, like in Freud, the unconscious is hidden, right? You, you'll, you never actually can encounter the unconscious because it's unconscious because that. <laughs> something is... So this is hidden. George really can't see it 
but in a way his whole authority is based on uh, uh, so in that kind of way the specter is sort of within culture so to speak uh, it's, so it requires something like a uh, and that's a, maybe our task, pedagogically and in, in, in scholarly terms, something like a psychoanalysis of ourselves uh, to try to kind of get out some of that stuff that's in our own construction of our careers, situations, which might not be all that great, but nevertheless have maybe some kind of element of the colonial the coloniality of power built into them. Yeah, that was it. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean it's sort of, it's related to that, but I want to bring it back to the question of violence, I suppose, and it, it almost starts from the departure point we were just talking about, because I was also reading the Derrida in Algeria, and I came across the quote which was um, to do with the surgical operation of deconstruction was always directed at the identity of the ontological violence that sustains the Western metaphysical and ideological systems. And I sort of was like, okay. You know, so then, and then I was reading That's Fanon. why I put that, because I thought it pulled the structuralism and <laughs> yeah, exactly. post-colonial violence together, right? Yeah. And, then I, and I was reading Fanon, you know, coincidentally afterwards, and I was just sort of thinking, okay, you know, you could work with this if you just substitute real violence with ontological violence and or to what extent can you just do that operation and to what extent have we actually not explored to the full potential the kind of for example anti-racist activism in latin america you know where you just literally kind of call out the lived experiences of everyday racism properly or at what point is, is that sort of not enough and, and and violence is maybe necessary and i'm thinking I may be misthinking, but I did read your Latin American post 9/11 book. But I've, there's been so much water under the bridge since then that I might be misremembering. But was there kind of a kind of a, a justification of, of of some form of violence in in there in the the, the pink tides I chapter? Think, uh, I can't. It uh, could be me. <laughs> the topic of violence and affect has imposed itself on me. Hmm because of the collapse of the pink tide governments in Latin America. Mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, ten years ago I wouldn't have said this, what I just said about Fanon, and I would have been much more discreet. And, uh, uh, and I wasn't really a Fanonian, you know, I was interested in subaltern studies and in the category of subaltern violence. But uh, politically it seemed, and, and maybe my Western the Western subject is still operating in some sense or another, uh, possible to channel that resentment uh, into uh, a, a political movement like the one in Brazil or the one in Bolivia or the one in Venezuela that would somehow bring subalternized sectors of the population for colonial reasons or for economic reasons or for gender reasons, but I tend to think they're all the same, right? Maybe I should make this point. I think coloniality of power is the basically the basic foundation of globalization. So to the extent that we're in globalization, it's not because we've transcended the post-colonial 
question, right? And now with some kind of generalized multiculturalism, we're all citizens of a common world. It's rather that globalization itself is the foundation of globalization. Post-colonialism is the foundation. Colonialism is the foundation of globalization. So the globalization means the universalization of the colonization, coloniality of power, rather than its transcendence. More and more dominated by a single principle of organization, right? More and more, more great global cities begin to look alike. You know, London, New York. So. Difference is sort of disappearing, right? Under the uh, very impressive uh, 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 surge of commodities. You wanted to say something? You look restless. Yeah, no, well, I was just wondering. Uh, you know, with that idea that uh, obviously. Uh, Globalization, in some sense, is in some way a, a fulfillment <laughs> or reali you know sure. realization of you know uh, you know the colonization of of America, uh, basically uh, that idea. And I'm just thinking what you know, just thinking about let's say the institutions involved in colonization. Um, you know. Because, you know, because, of course, you've got God and the church on the one hand. But now, you know, and, of course, you've got mercantile capitalism, right? Okay. Uh, well, yeah, God, as well. God and the church work. Yeah. God okay, and the, but they don't work as well as yeah. McDonald's. Well, McDonald's. that's right. But now, well, now, precisely, you have capital. And I think this is where the power... To a certain extent, anyway, the power of Negri and Hart's intervention was with a concept of an empire, because that concept of an empire is about the sovereignty of capital, right. in other words, and what capital does. And capital, in many ways, doesn't care about difference. In fact, uh, difference is just par for the course. It just generates more profits, let's say. And you know, you know what I mean. And then, and and that process, then, you know, and so on. So it's just more turnover, so to speak. So I just wonder whether the shift in, let's say, institutionality of the colonial, if you want to call contemporary capitalism colonial, whether, if you like, the shift, institutional shift makes any difference. Because, let's say, to struggle against the church, let's say, the church and state in, in Latin America, let's say, is one thing. To struggle against capital that's what we're finding. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean that capitalism backed by states, but there is a sense in which capital subordinates all states. But, that's what, but, in other words, so, yeah, exactly. it's, so where is the politics? But I want, what yeah, I'm trying yeah, to say is yeah. I think that ca capital itself is marked by coloniality. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because it comes into being modern capitalism anyway, with the construction of the colonial world. And I'm not saying that globalization is itself... Colonial. What yeah. I'm saying is that capitalism well, is the form of coloniality of power, which has now become or threatening to become universal. That seems to me a different thing than the old idea of colonial okay, empires. Yeah, okay. I was just wondering what, the, if you like, the, the relation politics institutions, if you see what I mean, how, how that works. It's just a. This is what you get from reading The Economist. You get these. Because when you read The Economist, what you're aware of, spectacularly, because they're all very bright people that run and write for that magazine, 
What a great success story contemporary capitalism has been, with a few rough spots like Venezuela or something like that, but that will soon be evened out, right? Uh, it's, it's, here you read about this new city in China that didn't even exist 20 years ago, and now they've got 15 million people, and they're producing more than whole countries, and it's just, and new technologies, uh, it's just a spectacular success story. And as you say, how can you really argue against that, you know? But I wanted to come back to your violence question and then and try to make that quick so we can get on to some other stuff. I, I think the, the question of violence, I, I hope I'll be able to talk about this more later, an affect. Uh, if you have a coherent narrative of historical progress, what Lukacs or Marxist literary critics might have said, an epic understanding of life. The, the, the 19th century novel had an epic thing. Mm -hmm. Then moments of violence or resentment or affect are that, moments. Just, but it's kind of like the distinction between tragedy and epic in Greek culture, right? The epic will carry you forward from the tragedy of Medea or Antigone to a new stage of things. And it's moving forward. But if you've lost your narrative of historical progress or historical continuity, if history rather appears to you as something discontinuous and marked, I was saying to John, uh, at, at least three times in my lifetime, my ex expectations of history have been canceled. One was my identification with the Cuban Revolution, two was my identification with the Nicaraguan Revolution, and third, my identification that you just referred to with the Pink Tide movement uh, in Latin America. So if you begin to get a sense that history is not a dimension that's going to deliver for you, right, in a, in a, in a meaningful sense, that you can trust it to produce a better, the kind of future you wanted to see, then I think the question of affect and moments of violence uh, begins to be more central. It's, it's not that you it really ex expect anything out of history, so there's no point in postponing gratification for the future because, look, now, now. So I think that's why I say I maybe wouldn't have said what I said about violence. I certainly don't say it in that book, mm. where I think I'm still thinking, well, yeah, there's violence, a lot of anger, and so, but that can be channeled into a new political <coughs> expression, right? even into the state, in some sense, you put that into the state, and then the state becomes an instrument of social change and decolonization. But now it looks more uncertain. So then, ah, affect, violence, uh, start to come, become more prominent. Well, Fanon, uh, I mean, my memory of Fanon is that, I mean, it's quite an extraordinary account of violence in, in many ways because, let's say, with the subalternist, you know, one of the issues there was that, of course, let's say historians, especially left-wing historians, would disqualify, if you like, the 
peasant rebellion and its violence. And they would disqualify them from, if you like, political subjectivity as being, you know, you know, adequate or proper political subjects. So the subalternists were saying, no, 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 no. I mean, that's just not on, <laughs> right? So In classical Marxism, that was the critique exactly, of spontaneity. Exactly. That well, was the way that And also, of course, Lenin would talk to, about peasants as rebels, not as revolutionaries. In other words, so, that, you know, they would only become subjects in alliance with the proletariat, etc. So what the subalternists are saying in many ways, <laughs> no, can't have that, uh, you know. Uh, uh, and, of course... So, if you like, the violence is, is significant politically as agency, as political agency. So they're, they're trying to rescue that. With Fanon, you have this just extraordinary account of violence in which it is, like I was saying earlier, constitutive. I mean, this is something, you know, we read Fanon in our seminar a year or two ago. And uh, my, my argument was is that violence acts there in Fanon, if I remember rightly, almost like the Enlightenment in almost a classical sense of Kant, you know. Awakening. Well, learn to be autonomous. Yeah. Other words, so uh, uh, violence in Fanon there is one of the processes through which, if you like, uh, the colonial subject becomes an autonomous, in other words, an independent subject in many ways. So the argument for violence is kind of incredible there. And it's the most, in a, in a way, it's the most powerful one because, of course, it has that dimension of producing, of, of, of politicity, <laughs> if you like, which obviously uh, now is almost impossible. <laughs> you know, almost impossible to that kind of interruption. It's almost in, in, impossible to contemplate, you know, like Quijano and let's say the Pink Tide doesn't participate, doesn't partake of that aspect in, uh, hardly at all, does it? I mean, in that kind of... Well, I don't know. In other words, uh, you know, that's what, in a way why I, I, I wanted to talk about, you know, what's going on there in many ways vis-a-vis -vis violence and you know, violence against what? <laughs> Who? Uh, um, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. It's... it's uh, it just fascinates me in a way. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Went on. The concept of violence, though, um, it's not one thing, obviously. No, of course. And Sivanandan, the Sri Lankan theorist who writes for race and class, yeah. his, his definition was that the, the violence of the violated was quite a different formative kind of violence, which I guess chimes with Fanon. Yes, because if you like revolutionary, let's say Fanonian violence is a response. It's a reconstitutive response to, let's say, what, to the trauma of colonial violence in some way. It's not simply effect either, because it takes you somewhere else. Absolutely, because you come up, you become um, like cured <laughs> in, in, in some kind of way. This is just my memory of the chapter. He was a psychiatrist, right? So fundamentally a psychiatric argument. That's why it's so interesting, because it's very powerful in that sense. So maybe the question of, because I have been reading Angela McGroby's book called After Feminism, mm -hmm. Probably a lot of you have read that, but mm -hmm. it's a very good critique, I think, of what sometimes gets called post-feminism or feminist mainstreaming, you know, the notion that feminism has sort of entered into the culture and uh, 
And of course, one of the things that disappears with uh, post-feminism is uh, feminist anger. If you're mainstream, if you're part of, you know, you're a talented young woman and uh, well-educated and ambitious, and you can be out there and doing things and no basis for anger. Right? Uh, even though women are half of the population of the world, right? And I, I don't think anybody here thinking about it for more would say that women anywhere in the world are in a condition of equality and uh, non-suppression uh, non in some way or another, right? So there's this whole part of the world, right, that is under, in some way or another, relationships of inequality. Uh, and the, the, the vehicle uh, for expressing that situation, I'm not trying to be unproblematic about feminism here, uh, is feminism. And feminism has, in some sense or another, precisely around the issue of violence, uh, been canceled. You don't have a right to anger anymore because this is more of a meritocracy kind of situation where women are free to be whatever they can be and want to be. Uh, but there's no structural impediment to that. We'll consume it. Vanetti, I think, at the end of the time, does there any, anybody else want to uh, ask a question or say something, <laughs> make an observation? See, there's plenty of time over the next few days. So, uh, now that we've come on to the question of feminism and femi mm. women's. Uh, you wanted to say yes. Uh, th that seems to be a new topic that's not anticipated in the, uh, in the uh, uh, syllabus, but one I think that uh, uh, maybe we could bring in a little bit more. My idea was in the next session uh, tomorrow to talk uh, uh, about subaltern studies in particular. Uh, John has been involved in that project, and what, what, what did we think was involved in, in that project, uh, which was clearly not only understanding how subaltern subjects or subalternity, colonial subalternity, works historically. That is how people were constituted in you know, colonial Spanish Empire or British Raj or whatever. Uh, uh, but also how subalternity works as a logic of contemporary of the contemporary world, how the subaltern is a category at work among us. Uh, and for that reason, a kind of uh, a li uh, link, anyway, between subaltern studies and cultural studies, because cultural studies involves, I think, centrally the notion of putting into uh, hegemonic discourse uh, forms of culture that are by definition as popular mass culture non-hegemonic. Right? Uh, taking seriously popular culture uh, as, a, as a place of uh, constitution of subjectivity and definition of uh, values and uh, so forth. Not, in either case, not unproblematically. I mean, both projects, both the project of subaltern studies uh, and the project of cultural studies, it seems to me, run into I won't say dead ends yet. Maybe with cultural studies, I'd say dead ends with subaltern studies. But problems, deep, deep problems, right? 
by the end of, of the 90s. So, uh, and then uh, Monday was to be the day to take up the questions of uh, the post. Uh, in other words, if we really are beyond post-colonialism in a certain sense, or beyond feminism in a certain sense, what then become new theories of uh, agency? Uh, and I would, my general uh, uh, sense uh, is that the, uh, on the left, the theory of agency that uh, seems to be most uh, influential basically derives from Deleuze and is a non-political theory of agency, that is a post-political theory of agency. Uh, doesn't take politics uh, seriously it's a, or is a form of what used to be called ultra-leftism. Uh, uh, so I would like to take up that question of ultra-leftism in contemporary theory, particularly Deleuzean-inflected contemporary theory, particularly hard and Negri and in arguments about uh, post-hegemony. Uh, but on the other hand, I'd like to finish off by giving a little bit of attention to the politics, the new politics of the right, which it seems to me have, are quite innovative in many kinds of ways. Uh, I've been reading with some interest, and I mentioned this in the syllabus, uh, the uh, Russian political philosopher Dugin, Alexander Dugin, who is said to be the Eminence Greece of Putin uh, uh, has a book called The Fourth Theory. If you have a chance to Wikipedia it over the weekend or something like that, uh, it's good. Uh, it's an interesting book because when you read it, you start thinking hey, there's a lot of Foucault in it, there's a lot of feminism, and a lot of post colonialism, heavy post colonial uh, element in Dugan. Uh, and then after, and so you're fascinated. You say, oh, I'm going to send this guy my book. I think we're on the same wavelength. And then <laughs> after, after you read a little bit further, you, you realize this guy's a fascist. <laughs> this guy is a fascist. And this is a new form, uh, post-colonial form, if you want, of, of fascism for the new day. In Just Europe, in the United <laughs> States, in Philippines, and wherever. Okay, but thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.